You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Hello. Welcome to the first ever episode of The Luxury Item with me, Scott Kerr. Thank you so much for listening in. You know, I've been thinking about doing a podcast for a while, and some of you may have heard the teaser I put out last month, but I'm finally excited to say that we are here. Episode one. First, let me tell you about why we're here. The Luxury Item is a podcast on the business of luxury. So why did I choose the business of luxury? Well, it's really a no-brainer. Think about it. It's a trillion-dollar industry, and it's booming. But at the same time, it's shifting and evolving like it never has before. We're seeing a new generation of luxury shoppers strong-arming high-end companies to change even faster. Soaring demand from a new generation of Chinese consumers is powering the global luxury market. Disruptor brands are capturing an increasing share of the consumer's wallets, brands like Farfetch and RealReal. Big luxury brands are pouring billions of dollars into data, analytics, machine learning, and AI in order to stay relevant. Streetwear has now become one of the fastest-growing segments of luxury and the resale channel for luxury is now a thing. So it seemed like a good idea to start a podcast featuring some of the movers, shakers, and disruptors who are living and breathing the luxury business to help marketers look under rocks for new opportunities. Let me tell you a little bit about me. I have a brand strategy company that I launched a year ago called Silvertone Consulting. We help rising businesses figure out their brand story in a smart and authentic way. You can read more about my company and what we do at SilvertoneConsulting.com. I've had a long career in marketing, advertising, and branding. I've held senior positions at some of the most well-respected ad agencies, media companies, and consumer brands. My clients ranged from Fortune 500 companies to startups across every major category, including the luxury category. Some of my clients included BMW, Mercedes, Gulfstream, Four Seasons Hotel, and Waterford Crystals, just to name a few. I've also learned from some of the best strategic and creative minds in the industry. Now I'm hoping to help you learn a thing or two from this podcast. So let's get started. So what better way to kick off a podcast on the business of luxury than to have the chief executive officer of an organization that focuses on advancing the business of luxury? On the phone, I have here Chris Olshin, who's the CEO of the Luxury Marketing Council. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a, a pleasure to be with you today. So I know you're back from Monaco, but uh, we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes um, because I'm dying to hear about it. But I just wanted to read your bio to everybody before we jump into things and obviously talk about Monaco, talk a little bit about the Luxury Marketing Council and other hot topics. So Chris Olshin is the Chief Executive Officer of the Luxury Marketing Council and has been Chief Marketing Officer since 2010. He ran new business development and collaborations and sponsorships for member brands, and in 2011, founded the company's millennial division, the Young Luxury Marketers Council. Before joining the council, Chris was a licensed real estate broker in Pennsylvania. He is a serial entrepreneur. His first venture at 18 was a luxury cleaning and home care care service company. That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to hear more about that. And in the early 2000s, Chris specialized in connecting the most affluent buyers with the most affluent owners of the rarest limited production exotic imports, like Ferrari and Lamborghini and Porsche and Mercedes, Bentley, Aston Martin, just to name a few. He opened automotive dealerships that 
procured high-ticket vehicle financing. Chris has also built an organization of more than 500 streetcar racers on the East Coast and has built a high-end fashion modeling agency. Now, Chris, is that one project? <laughs> because I love that combination of a modeling agency and streetcar and street racers. I'm assuming that's two it different actually projects. It was. One, one kind of turned into the other. So we started with the street racing company, and it, it kind of morphed into a what's missing from you know a weekly evening get-together get together with 500 racers. And it was the promotional aspect. It was there's got to be something else we can market other than entry and racing. And that turned into we have the opportunity to do calendars and posters and have models, you know, kind of showcase different vehicles that wound up eclipsing the racing business. And as I got a little bit older and decided I didn't like kind of risking my life racing anymore, <laughs> it was easier to stand behind a camera than be behind the wheel of a sports car. Ah, now it all makes sense. And most recently, you launched the Surly Penguin, a new, a new distillery creating handcrafted cordials and bespoke liqueurs. Sourcing fruits and herbs and spices from local farms, this 22-flavor brand delivers premium quality products. Tell me, I love the name. You have to tell, tell myself and the listeners about it. Yeah, so Silly Penguin is a, a line of cordials and liqueurs. Um, it actually started way back before we launched the business. My brother was doing microbrew beer in college. Uh, later became a, an English teacher, and obviously students and alcohol don't mix. So when we decided to launch the brand, he said, you know, hey, we kind of crafted this at your house when I was living with you during my college years. You should take the, the name over and run with it. So we essentially decided to, to launch a business around the idea that liquor could be more than just a, a poor tasting alcohol. You know, there are some really great brands out there that are, are doing it right but in general when you think of alcohol there's not that much flavor. It's, it's an intense burn. It's, you know, essentially a chemical taste and you have to really work to appreciate it. We wanted to make something that was all about the flavor first and worry about alcohol, alcohol content later. So we found a way to essentially infuse oils and flavoring directly into the alcohol during distillation and being in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania has the, yeah. the best non-irrigated farmland in the country. We leveraged all of the local farmers that were growing organic products and used the local fruits and vegetables from a lot of the farms in the area to produce the juices that we use to create the alcohol. That's great. What is where does so the name? So it's very taste first. Yeah. Where does the name come from? Uh, the name was uh, a joke my brother had about me at four o'clock in the morning after sampling a little bit too much of their product one night, he and his friend making a lot of noise. Um, I essentially was the surly penguin stumbling downstairs at four <laughs> o'clock in the morning to tell them to shut up and go back to bed that I had to work in the morning. Oh, okay. And joke just kind of continued ever since. Great. Uh, and Chris is a sought after authority on the changing luxury market and customer latest trends in technology strategies and tactic tactics for selling to the ultra ultra high net worth customers the millennial generation, and impact they have on the economy. So anyway, that's why we have Chris here today. Um, welcome, Chris. Thanks for coming on the show and being my first guest. And I would love to hear a little bit more. I, mean, I think, I think the, the listeners would love to hear a little bit more about the Luxury Marketing Council, how it started, what its mission was, and where you see it moving and, and some of the challenges right now. Sure. So the Luxury Marketing Council started in 1994 by our founder, Greg Fern. Uh, he had a, a fairly extensive luxury career and career in, in the corporate world prior to starting the council. 
Uh, he ran marketing for the New York Stock Exchange in the early 80s. He ran the public affairs division of J. Walter Thompson called Briard, and his last corporate career job was running marketing in the catalog business for Bergdorf Goodman under Bert Tansky. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 94, Bert left to go to Texas to run Neiman Marcus, and Greg didn't want to leave New York, and saw that as kind of his wake-up call from the universe to start a business. And what he realized was a lot of the major luxury brands, two things. One, they were very heavy on advertising, but very light on classic packaged goods marketing. Um, You know, throw a lot of money at billboards, tell the customer what to wear, but they weren't really integrating their entire marketing approach. Part two, it was all vertical silo driven. So jewelry talked to jewelry, hotels talked to hotels, travel talked to travel, but nobody talked to one another. And so his concept was to flip the model horizontally and say, why can't a great cruise line learn from a hotel? Why can't a jewelry company learn from an accessory company? There, there are, you know, everybody's marketing to the same top customers. At the end of the day, the, the, the process is very similar. Right. And so he said, you know, the, the two things he wanted to do was flip the model horizontally, part one, and part two, go directly to the decision makers. Because the other challenge, especially with a lot of the public companies, was to get permission from your boss and then get permission from their boss and get permission from their boss to make something happen. The, the time would stretch to, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months later, and a lot of opportunities were missed just because of how long it took to get corporate consensus to do something. Right. So he started in 94, uh, approached about 70 companies, 32 joined on the spot. And the concept was essentially three part. Be, if not the global thought leader, one of the global thought leaders on the luxury market, how it's changing, who are the best customers and how are they changing? And most importantly, understand and get a handle on what the smartest brands are doing to get the people with the most money to spend more money within the stores and with the companies. Part two, to serve as a networking organization for decision makers of luxury brands, help them first and foremost better understand each other's businesses, and then find ways to share costs, share database, share special events, and create partnerships to surprise and delight those top customers. The last piece is, you know, in theory, all that works, but we then realized we needed to serve as an introducing broker and actually help facilitate those partnerships between the member companies. So, so fast fun. forward 26 years later, yeah. uh, New York has over 300 member companies. We serve brands in more than 60 cities worldwide and just keep repeating the process. So well, did you find, you know, if you think about the Luxury Marketing Council back then versus now, you know, there's, there's always that territoriality of where, you know, you have marketers, all, the, all these marketers sitting in a room, especially in the, in the luxury industry, that they don't want to give away too much to just even if they're not in the same category. Do you find that has changed where they're more willing to work together in the last five years or so and understanding that the industry is evolving very quickly and maybe they can learn from each other? Maybe we should play in the, in the, uh, in the sandbox nicely together. And do you see if that was that different versus maybe 10 years ago? Uh, I don't know if it was different from five to 10 years ago. I can tell you that when the company started, if you put a hundred brands in the room and asked them how many were interested in partnerships, you might get five hands out of a hundred. Right. Today, you probably see 85 or 90 hands out of a hundred. I think the real tipping point, um, there were kind of two, you know, pre-recession. So 2005, six, seven, eight brands were making so much money that they were less concerned about 
keeping things close to the vest. And that's kind of the beginning of let's really open the kimono and find ways to work together, share database, share special events. Once the recession hit and everybody just got totally smacked, that was when brands started to see it from not just a, we have the extra money, why not try? But this is imperative to the survival of our business. And we need to find better ways to market to our top customers, better ways to keep them involved and, you know, not make the mistake that some of the brands did, which was radical discounting. Right. And if you're not going to radically discount a product in the recession, you need to provide additional value add. And that's really where we saw a major change as brands started saying, okay, we're not going to cut 80% off of the price, but we need to give enough value that people are willing to still spend what we're, we're asking for the product. Yeah. So, and that's even changing as, you know, as the market's changing now, um, you know, the whole luxury industry is changing and that it will be interesting to see how the luxury marketing council evolves with this industry where, you know, we're seeing millennials and Gen Z play a large role in this shift, um, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and how the, how you see the luxury marketing council adapting to that. So, you know, where do you see the growth coming here and some of the, some of the thought process giving where what's driving the luxury market now, how do you see the, um, the council evolving? So I think there's, there's a couple of different comments to this. I mean, the, the other one, in addition to the recession, is the other piece of what changed in 2008-9 that people sometimes forget is the iPhone mm -hmm. and the idea of really true smartphones coming to market. Um, so there was this, this really weird shift between everybody suddenly was looking at their budget, the market was drying up, the banks were crashing, and now everybody has all information available at their fingertips and has a way of communicating with one another that is unprecedented, the idea of social media. Right. So on the council side, you know, our evolution is, is almost counterintuitive. Um, we've done a couple of different things. One, we've focused a little more on experience. So we're doing executive summits. We've scaled back the number of major evening events with 100 plus people and are focusing on more intimate 20 to 30 individual lunches where brands have a better opportunity to get to know each other. Right. We've built out an idea gallery and kind of revamped our global website so that we have online content available for members and subscribers who can kind of access a library of luxury. But the real focus for us is not following the bell curve, is not becoming an online company, not focusing on social media, not focusing on Instagram. We still focus completely on the, the individual face-to-face -face connections. Right. And I think that's been the shift was we started really looking at technology until the recession. And then we realized everybody is doing this and nobody is still – building relationships on handshakes. You, you no longer are meeting people. Everybody's working virtually and you never are leaving your house. And we said, well, you know, for the true luxury executives, they still want that personal relationship. They still want to build that connection and create long-term synergies with other executives. And that can't be done by phone or email. It's, it's a good starting point, but you need that time with a person to really build that relationship and build that trust to be able to work together. Right. Um, what's interesting, you know, your experience, you, you know, back in 2011, you founded that Millennials Division, the Young Luxury Marketers Council, and that's still going, I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. Um, so what... uh, it's been it's been revamped. Yeah. But the, the concept of, you know, leveraging and, and working with the smartest millennials has, has held true. But what we've learned is, 
you know, my, my silly joke is millennials hate other millennials. Can you clarify that? Business world. Yeah. Millennials want act. They want to cut through the corporate structure. Right. They want access to the decision makers. They want to be heard. They want to be involved. They want opportunities to develop. And if you put a whole bunch of millennials in the room that are all kind of stuck at the middle management level waiting for, you know, Xers and boomers to retire or waiting for their turn to get a seat at the table, right. there's not that much value in them getting to know each other. Right. Where they see the value is being smart enough to reach out to us and say, we want early access. We want to understand what's going on in the market. We want to understand how to approach executives and to work with senior decision makers. And we want to use this information in this network to further our career and get smarter and faster with the rest of the senior leadership. Yeah. And that's kind of what this has morphed into, and it's been great because it really separates the wheat from the chaff. It's, these are the ones, these millennials that reach out and say, you know, how do we learn about this industry? How do we better understand how to network? How do we understand the mind of a CEO? They're the ones that tend to, you know, make it two or three years as young members right. and then convert their membership into corporate memberships because they're being promoted to positions of decision-making ability. Yeah. So – that's that's great. I mean, that's from the from the marketing side. Now, let's sort of turn, you know, speaking of millennials and Gen Z, let's turn to the millennials and Z from a consumer side. And, you know, you're talking about the millennial state of mind when it comes to from a marketer's perspective. You know, now there's, you know, there's a millennial state of mind when it comes to luxury and, you know, personal luxury goods. So how do you think right now, because that, it really is a hot, hot topic all around the world, and how do you see millennials and Gen Z, the younger generation, changing the um, the luxury industry and how you know who are you seeing who are you seeing that are adapting to some of those changes and who you know some of the brands if you want to name them or not um, or what brands need to do and marketers need to do to embrace this um, millennial mindset. So I've got a couple of comments and I always preface by saying I am a millennial. I'm on the older side of the millennials, but I'm technically a, a millennial. Which means you're a boomer. And the reason I, <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, that, you, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. And that's the point is, you know, number one, millennials are a big pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're a pain in the butt is they have been given power that no other generation has had. They have the ability to communicate and to change things almost instantaneously through through social network. It's, you know, you, you, you come up with a, a comment, a topic, an issue, and you get millions of other millennials to rally around it, and it forces change. Right. The problem is with great power comes great responsibility, and the key that's missing is wisdom. And so I think one of the big challenges when you look at the, the millennial as a customer is a lot of these millennials are young. They're mm-hmm. living at home. They have disposable income because they don't really have any overhead. They're just finishing school or they didn't go to school or they went to school and moved back home and are trying to figure out a job. They're not in the same position as the Xers, the boomers and the older millennials. You right. know, I, I got married five years ago. My wife and I bought a house. We have two kids under two. How we think about luxury, how we shop, how we spend, what we spend on is night and day difference from my brother who's three years younger than me or you know, our nanny who's in her early 20s. It's, it's a completely different lifestyle, a completely different mindset. 
So when you start talking about the millennial as a customer, you really need to segment them into almost three different sectors. The older millennials that are acting more like boomers and Xers and, you know, adults with kids and families, the millennials that are out of school, starting their careers, starting to see some disposable income, thinking about leaving the nest or just leaving the nest. And then the young millennials that are still at home and that's a distant, you know, distant future they're not planning for yet. Right. So that, I think, is the first challenge when you look at the millennial as a customer is not lumping everybody together. And then Gen Z is a whole nother animal. The good news about Gen Z is I think they've learned from some of the crazy things millennials has, have done, and they're looking a little more like the original boomers and Xers and kind of steering away from a lot of the, the millennial-esque ways of doing things. Um, but as far as the millennial customer goes, there are some, some standards that don't change. Number one it's by how you want, when you want, where you want. Right. So it's no longer you have to get dressed up and go to an apartment store to shop. If you don't want to leave your house, you buy online. If you don't want to deal with service people, you shop online. You don't have to go to the store. You don't have to talk to people. You know, you can look at stuff in the store and have it delivered to your house later. It's, it's on your own clock. Two, everybody is realizing that there are multiple outlets for the same products. Mm-hmm. So whether you decide to buy on you know, Amazon worthy or directly from Tiffany. Now that's not the greatest example because Tiffany's not Amazon, but you can purchase in with multiple outlets. So you don't actually have to deal directly with the brand anymore like you used to. Right. So where does that leave the other? Go ahead. So what, but I mean, that's an interesting point. And we'll get back to that. Is this, you know, you don't have to deal with the brand anymore. So if that's the case, you know, what do marketers have to do if, they, if they're realizing that consumers don't have to deal with the brand anymore, or younger consumers don't have to deal with the brand anymore? Do they have to try harder? Do they have to tell better stories about their brand? What do they need to do so brands do matter? Because there, you know, there are conflicting um, messages out there than, and, and theories that you know, brands sure. still, still matter to, to uh, millennials and Gen Z. It just have to be spoken to differently and they will go to a retail store uh, you know around that brand uh, a boutique store that uh, that focuses on that brand but they have just to connect them in a different way well that's exactly it it's it's a kind of a, a silly comment but it's it's millennials don't have to deal with brands anymore so the brand has to make the millennial want to deal with them and that can either be through information, you know, really diving down the rabbit hole and explaining the brand, explaining the quality, explaining, explaining the craftsmanship, getting the consumer to really understand a product or service. It could be engagement where it's, you know, whether it be a social media campaign, um, you know, an Instagram campaign where it's, you know, pick a photo in this outfit at as many locations as you can. It's, it's involving the millennial in the, the story of the brand. Right. Or part three, it's revamping the whole idea of product. And, you know, there's an old American Express chestnut that our founder and I use all the time about the four stages of luxury, Mm -hmm. acquisitive, inquisitive, authoritative, and meditative. Mm -hmm. And the long and short is the first three stages are all about product. And it's either, you know, nothing about the product and it's the more you spend, the bigger the logo, the better. You're starting to know about product, but still need help from the salespeople to understand product. Or you figured out product and you know what you want and why you want it. You can be the authority on what you're buying. The latest stage, which is where the U.S. is, is the meditative stage. Mm-hmm. In that stage, it's not about product. It's how does that product better my life? 
How does it give me more time with my family? How does it ease my workload? How does it give me a better memory with people that I care about? Something along those lines. So what most brands are, are starting to look at more, and you know, this is one of those buzzwords that's been overused, experience. Right. What is the experience of either the brand or what is the experience that this product can give me? Yeah. And that's been very, very powerful because, you know, everybody cares about the memory. It's how can a brand that's not a, a service industry but a product industry leverage that product for the experience? Yeah, it's interesting. And so that's been a really big focus that's worked well with engaging a younger consumer because it's, hey, this backpack, this set of shoes, this pen, this, you know, this cruise line can give you an experience that is unparalleled and unmatched. And by leveraging the luxury product, you're getting a more luxurious experience and getting a better experience with people that matter to you. Yeah, and it's interesting that you're saying that because you're starting to see – um, some shifts in the market where you are getting luxury brands trying to get millennials and younger audiences to experience the brand. And I was just reading the other day, you know, Porsche has that this whole rental program now where you can, you know, you can download an app and you can rent a different Porsche every kind of every week. I think right now I think it was expanded to eight markets. It started in Atlanta. Um, but at the same time, you have, you know, think about the the growth of the, you know, the secondary market now, the resale market. Um, how that's become re- growing for uh, for luxury brands, you know, is that sort of the um, the gateway drug to you know to buying uh, you know into that brand. So you're seeing a lot of different things going on out there where you're getting entry points for uh, younger consumers to experience the brand. Absolutely, resale and rental as well. And rental, um, yes, of course. You know, I think I think one of the things that that happened with the recession. Well, two things that really happened with the recession. Number one, the aspirational buyer almost totally went away. Mm-hmm. The idea of spending six months to save to buy a pocketbook so you can have a, a Birkin bag doesn't really exist anymore. People are saying, you know, I lost half of my savings. If I'm going to save for six months, it's not going to be to buy a pocketbook. Right. The other thing that happened is people started to realize that the value of certain luxury products or lack of value of certain products, and it became – you know, I, I don't need to buy this season's clothing at retail when six months from now it'll be at the outlet store for 25% of the price. Right. And the idea that, you know, just because a, a T-shirt is, you know, 100% Pima cotton and, you know, it's well-made doesn't mean that you need to spend $150 on it because you can probably get for 40 or 50 if you don't have to have the most current items. Right. Now, there's always going to be people that have to be cutting edge, want to be cutting edge. That's part of true luxury, whether it be couture or whether it be, you know, streetwear, where there's a, a limited production of 600 shoes made by Bali and you either get them or you don't. But I think for most of the market, the recession really just changed the mindset of people that you can spend when it's worth spending. But just because something is, quote, luxury doesn't mean that it should always command the price that the brand says it should. Yeah. So where does that leave the brand now? How should they react to that market? How should, you know, the, the, the shifting market, you know, does heritage even play a role anymore when, you know, um, when talking about luxury brands? You know, they've always relied on you know, a lot of brands relied on their heritage. Does that still, you know, has the balance changed on that? So, you know, given that market change where, you know, consumers don't need to have the must-have bag um, every season. 
and are you know are okay with a you know rental renting something or a resale market or something something else how do, you know how can how can luxury marketers sort of take that embrace that uh, without sort of diluting what their brand was all about in the first place yeah i mean for for heritage let's start with heritage brands because i have a, a great love hate with heritage brands in one respect heritage brands they've been around they know what true craftsmanship is they know what true quality is and they do a brilliant job with their products. And as an older millennial, I love buying from heritage brands. Where heritage brands started to have a big problem is in the idea that the sale is a given. It's, oh, your grandfather bought from my brand, your father bought from my brand, so automatically you're going to buy from my brand. Instead of seeing the millennial customer as a totally new customer that needs to be sold in and convinced that this is a brand worth buying from. Right. So there was a bit of kind of heritage ag- arrogance among a lot of these brands that it, the sale is guaranteed because for two generations or three generations, your family has bought from our company. That was, I think, their first, first mistake that they've been correcting. The second mistake was how do we get the actual message across? How do we get people to understand what goes into our product, what goes into our design, what goes into the craftsmen that actually make this, that is not a you know, machine that's just spitting out product, but this is actually hand done and done with a quality that's unmatched. Right. So brands have started to get better at really relating their story and explaining what, what their product is about. Um, the other thing that's, that's starting to shift is brands are realizing that it's not just about being able to sell a product. It's about doing good for the world, Right. whether that be from a carbon emission standpoint, a social economic standpoint, you know, not depleting rainforests, micro farmers who are, you know, you're, you're making sure to drive resources and money back to the locals that are actually producing you know, getting on board with a, a social campaign that's relevant in today's world, all of that kind of now plays in and is no longer the big greedy company that's just going to take the money from the rich. It's the big company that has to have the power to do good because they're getting this money. Yeah, I think, you know, a, a, I think it was a Nielsen study that basically said if two products are of identical quality and one has a social or economic um, charitable aspect to it, and the other one does not, millennials, nine out of 10, will buy the product that gives back just because it helps justify the purchase. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about the recent uh, G7 meeting uh, and Macron, Macron officially uh, launched that fashion pack that had 32 fashion textile companies, you know, to promote sustainability in the fashion industry. So do you think these fashion labels sort of risk losing market share in the coming years if they don't embrace environmentally and socially acceptable behavior? I think um, I think a little bit. I think really it's almost it's almost not as important to embrace doing good as it is to make sure you don't do bad. Mm-hmm. As much as I hate to say it that way, I think it's great that these brands are doing this. I think it's almost a hedge against the idea of, well, if we don't do this and something goes horribly wrong, we can't recover, especially in today's fast-paced social world where the minute a company makes a mistake, everybody knows about it instantly, everybody gets angry about it quickly, and the brand suffers almost immediately. Right. 
So it's almost protection against by doing this. I mean, I think across the board it's a good thing and should be done by everybody. But I don't know if a brand is really going to lose market share if they don't do this so much as they don't do this and then something bad happens. Which, yeah. you know, nine out of ten times, that's how it goes. If a brand doesn't try to do better, at some point they do worse, and then they're called out not only for doing worse, but for not trying to do better. But, I mean, do you, you have to agree that brands, not only luxury brands, but all brands have to become more transparent because that's, you know, that's what consumers are demanding now. But you're saying that, you know, their marketing strategy shouldn't be, you know, hinge on sustainability, but just to sort of get the point across that, you know, that's right. That's, that's the cherry on the Sunday, right. not what you're actually buying. So I think, and you know, the other thing about brands needing to be more transparent, right. I think brands have been forced into transparency because you can find anything online, whether a brand wants you to or not. Right. So at the end of the day, it's not about a brand becoming transparent for the sake of being transparent. It's more about the brand being able to control the message by bringing it out first. And, you know, it's, it's almost a political game. It's, well, if I did something that's not great, it's better for me to announce it than to have a third party announce it. Yeah. Same idea with the brands. If they are taking control of their message, if they're admitting when they do something that's not right, if they're working to correct it immediately and staying in front of it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's public affairs and crisis management. If you do that well, you're less likely to shoot yourself in the foot and have somebody else do it for you and throw you under the bus. Yeah. And that's where I think brands are still kind of shaking the cobwebs off and haven't fully hit the point of being able to say, we're better off getting in front of this than not. You know, more and more brands are figuring that out sooner. But I think it's that, that old-fashioned corporate mentality of, we don't want to admit there's a problem until we have to, as opposed to let's admit this well in advance before it becomes a problem and hopefully prevent it from be, being a problem. So last topic um, really has to do with, you know, what you feel is really going to be the greatest challenge for the luxury market over the next five years. And, you know, why do you think that's the case? And what can luxury marketers do? Um, I think there's a, a, you know, there's a few major, major challenges. One of the biggest ones is the, the rise of entrepreneurship, the ability for any individual to create a product or service, market it online in the right select cities, and turn something small into a major luxury brand. For a lot of the, the established luxury companies, that is going to be the biggest disruptor, that, you know, Anybody can become a luxury brand and anybody can get traction and awareness. I mean, look at Kylie Jenner. She's 21 years old and has already created a billion dollar business. Right. 20 years ago, that would never happen. So for, for brands and luxury marketers, I think the biggest, the biggest challenge is going to be staying relevant, staying on top of of the industry as the industry shakes itself out. You know, you've got privacy laws in Europe that haven't hit the U.S. yet. You've got social media changing the way everybody does business and everybody thinks about products. But what's going to last is kind of the, the unanswered question. Um, you know, 20 years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't as hard to answer that. If you look back to 2006 and 7, MySpace was the biggest social network in the world. And everybody wanted to be on MySpace. All of a sudden, MySpace disappeared. 
And anybody who said, oh, this is where the market's going just was wrong. Everybody said Facebook is going to be the biggest thing for the millennial generation. Well, what happened? Boomers got on Facebook, and all of a sudden kids said, I don't want to be on Facebook with my parents. We're moving to Twitter. All of a sudden everybody starts tweeting. Every business in the world has a Twitter handle. Right. Millennials said, let's move to Instagram. Let's move to Snapchat. And I think we're still in this Wild West phase of technology where it's so young, so new, you know, the, the generations are, are having more of a voice earlier than ever before. And we just haven't sorted this all out yet as a, as a society, more so than even just luxury brands. So I think for, for luxury companies, their biggest challenge is navigating these waters without betting too hard on any one racehorse where it may make them antiquated or just, you know, make them disappear. Right. So what do you think, what do you think uh, luxury retail is going to look like in five years? Oh, I, I've heard all sorts of stories. Everything from you go into a, I think one, it's going to be less about buying in store and more about showroom. That I think is a, is a given. Mm -hmm. I think pop-ups are going to continue to be big business. I think the idea of just your standard department store is going to change radically. Um, you know, if you really want to kind of stretch to the, the ultra extreme, you go into a showroom, which used to be a store, you decide on a product you like, you fully customize it on the spot, and a 3D printer produces it for you while you wait, and you take your completely bespoke, customized to you product home with you. Yeah, I I'm, think that's probably more like a 15 or 20 year plan, but I, I think the idea of your traditional store model is changing. It's less about how much stuff can you pack into the store right. and more about how can you craft a unique experience, showcase something creative. I mean, um, Burberry started this years ago, did a really good job. The idea of like the virtual walkways or the virtual mirrors where you go into a dressing room and you can physically see yourself in different outfits without having to try them on as your first step. I think it's going to become more interactive, more experiential, more about, yeah, more about the experience, more about going shopping than what you're actually buying. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of these direct to consumer brands. And I think stores brands. are going to skinny down. You're not going to have 40 stores in yeah. 40 bucks anymore that are all selling the same thing. Right. We're seeing a lot of these direct to consumer brands that are launching, I'll call them pop-ups or showrooms, like you said, just no inventory at all in there. Um, it's someone with an iPad and just taking sizes and, and having, you know, bespoke product delivered to them at the same time when well, they're the there, they get the experience. Smarter. They're understanding right. that, you know, there's a, a cost to having a brick and mortar store and that at the end of the day, the consumer is absorbing that cost. So when you have 20 stores in two cities and you're paying the overhead of the salespeople, the overhead of the cleaning service, the overhead of the utilities, the overhead of owning the product and having the product in each store available constantly. And if you just ordered it online, you'd save 25%. Consumers are saying, well, why am I paying an extra 25% so that you can have 50 stores that nobody's in? We should be saving the money and having it shipped to our house, and it's easier to get anyway. Right. So um, I'm getting the two-minute sign. So my final question, this is sort of going to be a tradition on all the shows. My final question for each guest is going to be the luxury item question, since this name of the show is the luxury item. So if you were stranded on a desert island, what single luxury item would you want to have with you? And it can't be any form of transportation, of course. <laughs> um, well, I mean, if we're talking product. It's however, whoever, say, however you want to define luxury. All right. Well, personally, for me, luxury is my family. 
I don't care if I'm in a tent or in a five-star resort. If I've got my two kids and my wife with me, that's the greatest luxury to me is time with them. So that would be my sense of, of true luxury. If we're sticking to product, I would say if you guys can throw a nice five-star hotel on a desert island with you know full service, I'd be thrilled. If that's too extreme, I'm very pale, so a really, really high-end sun-to-hand lotion from like a Vilber can or one of them, so I don't <laughs> char in the sun would be great. Not a lifetime supply of cigars? No, 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 no. In <laughs> fact, uh, my, my running joke is ever since having kids, I think the only time I really ever smoke cigars anymore is when we have another kid. Um, <laughs> there's, just, there's less time to do it, and... You know, while it's still a luxury, I think everybody's getting a little more health conscious. And the idea of puffing on a cigar constantly, one, I think it takes some of the luxury away because it becomes an everyday vice as opposed to something premium and enjoyable that you do on a special occasion. And two, you know, if you don't smoke a cigar for seven months and then smoke one, you notice you smoke one the next day, which I still enjoy a good Cuban every now and then, but less often than I used to. (laughs) Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much. Chris Olshin, the CEO of the Luxury Marketing Council, uh, my first guest on the luxury item. Thank you so much. Anytime, Scott. Thrilled to be here and really, really think this is a brilliant idea. Looking forward to, to working with you more on it. Same here. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Bye. And that's it for the first episode of the luxury item. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Luxury Item at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.